I V M. Hello, welcome, and Khushamdi. You are listening to the Note with me, Maharo Khinayat. On this episode of the Note is a very special guest. She's been a journalist for more than five decades, a celebrated journalist at that, a pioneer political journalist who's worked with some of the biggest publications in the country. She's author of one book and another book, which I'm going to talk to you about today, is this one right in my hand: uh, "The Tatars, Freddie Mercury, and Other Bavas: An Intimate History of the Parsis." Uh, for me, it's an absolute honor to welcome Kumi Kapoor. Thank you so much for being on the note, ma'am. Thank you, Maruk, for being so nice and complimentary, and thank you for calling me. I have been a fan, and I think I speak for several of my peers and contemporaries. We've seen your work all along and been inspired by it. So it's a personal honor for me to talk to you today. That's very sweet of you. <laughs> I uh, absolutely enjoyed the book, uh, and it gave me a deep insight into into the Parsi community. I wanted to start out by saying that at the start of the book, you say you were quite embarrassed when somebody asked you about your ancestry, and that kind of propelled you to uh, to write this book. How has been this, uh, you know, this experience of realization of your own identity? Uh, well, actually, I said in our childhood, my siblings and I. we were a little embarrassed by some of the idiosyncrasies of the parsi community hmm. which is why probably we warded off attempts by our parents to you know instill hmm. more in us about the community and the religion uh, it wasn't when i grew up that i was at all embarrassed about the community but i was living in delhi no no i mentioned that somebody asked you about your ancestry and you didn't know enough yes yes that was really yes. the trigger point So I went late in life to a, the Parsi pilgrimage sites of Udwada and Surat and Navsari and Sanjan, and somebody asked me, "Where did your grandparents come from? Did they come from Surat or Navsari?" And I was embarrassed because I didn't know. I mean, I knew they were from Bombay and Pune, but I where earlier I didn't know, which is why I went back, and then I started researching. and i found quite a lot of mention about my mother side of the family actually so that got me interested and just coincidentally around the same time uh, a publisher asked me if i'd like to write a book on the parsis so i said yeah i'd like to do that very much and another coincidence uh, you know i'm a journalist so we're always looking for a story i mean i didn't want to i knew very clearly that if i was writing about the parsis i didn't want to do it as some kind of encyclopedia of people or just a historical book i wanted it to be a book which people would like to read with a lot of stories woven in to bring out the tapestry of the parsi mm-hmm. story and then what would happen in 2016 but the famous fight between uh, ratan tata and cyrus mystery uh-huh and at once the thought clicked in my head that's the obvious lead for the story because it's such an interesting story about india's largest business house and while the economic papers and other newspapers are carrying the story they're not bringing out the flavor and the interconnections of the people involved their genealogies their backgrounds they changing dynamics with each other relationships mm. i felt that also needed to be included in the story 
and the realization of your own identity because the feeling one gets by the end of it is that you feel proud in a sense to be part of this community of philanthropists and you know entrepreneurs and extremely what you call uh, uh, women who have broken the glass ceiling over and over again i've always to some extent actually been proud but yes researching on the subject i became super proud but we used to joke about with my mother that all oh, stop saying i'm a parsi as if you're a special <laughs> but i guess in your old age you also start thinking yeah maybe there was something a little special Uh, you know in your opening chapter uh, you say that a well known parsi lawyer told you that when parsis fight they never settle and three of the most prominent parsis and indians ratan tata cyrus mistri and nusli wadia were in an open public spat your books gives like you said it gives an insider account delving into their personalities their interconnections and there's so many of those which is actually very delicious I wanted to understand how upset was the community given all the actors in the courtroom and boardroom drama are also huge community icons. Yes. So I think there was shell shock when the news first came out. I mean, you know, Parsis have always been known for the right reasons and this yes. was totally the opposite <laughs> with people spilling out stories and making accusations against washing dirty linen in public. which was simply not on and there was a financial angle to it as well because parsis generally like to invest in parsi firms and most of all mm. the tata so at the time of the fight the shares also came down temporarily and so it was pinching their pockets as well and everyone was muttering to themselves that why on earth can't they settle <laughs> but that has taken a while and it's still ongoing isn't it well it's sort of supreme court earlier this year gave a very decisive judgment in favor of the tata but it's not over in the sense that i think there's still loopholes because what happens about mr mystery's 18.3% of the shares the right. uh, supreme court did not explain can he monetize them can he not monetize them at what price you know as a and i'm going to talk about you mentioned that there were certain idiosyncrasies that you would discuss as siblings with your parents about the parsi community as a community the parsis have been portrayed in a certain stereotypical manner in our films right a, a strange manner of speaking broken hindi dressed in a particular manner do you think that portrayal was exaggerated in those days in my childhood it was very much there it's not so much over there hmm they did tend if you lived in bombay to move particularly in parsi circles and like some of the people my mother for example dressed a bit differently from other people with the georgette sari and the embroidered border and the sari worn the other way so and they also cracked what their parsi gujarati jokes were so you feel the portrayal wasn't too exaggerated it was quite true to how the community was in those days it was i mean it's become less and less you know the community type any case mm. i moved to delhi years ago for my yes. career so i you know i go back for holidays to bombay which mm-hmm. is really the heartland of the parsis of pune yes but i didn't have that much connection so i i wanted to uh you know apart from the tatas the wadias 
there's Homi Baba that you speak about, Sam Manikshaw, Freddie Mercury, such illustrious names. Why do you think we know so little about the community? Why are there, for instance, uh, such few references in popular culture today about the community? Actually, I wouldn't say there's too few references, but very much so in the film industry, you always see the stereotypical funny character. Mm. Uh-huh. Yes, Parsi Bhava and his jokes about it. And generally, there's a lot of reverence because, as I pointed out in my book, that a lot of the institutions which made modern India were actually founded by Parsi. So they had a hand in them, like the film industry or the cricket, uh, you know. Mm. I know if people know, but the first Indian cricket team was started by Parsis, even mm. before the first war of independence. The first time that the British came with a team to play cricket in India, it was with a Parsi team. So, in a sense, the reason why you wrote this book also opened up, I mean, my eyes to a lot of facts about the community, which is where my question was coming from. That, do you feel that they're not being written about enough? Well, they've certainly written a lot about themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) But one reason I wanted to do the book was, I felt a lot of the books were very for hagiographies, you know, too laudatory about themselves rather Mm. than bringing out all sides and colors of a community. Kumi, what was also interesting to me is that despite being very connected and invested in the community, uh, these very icons that you've written about in the book do not wear their religion on their sleeve. What would you say is the reason for that? Yes, that's a very perceptive observation. They don't wear their religion on the sleeve at all. In fact, the industrialists I talked to kept making the point, we're not a Parsi company, we are uh, an Indian company. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't know to what extent now, but certainly a century ago, preference would definitely have been given to a Parsi in employment, whether it was the Tatas or the Godridges. It still may carry a slight edge for a Parsi, but not too much. Mm. But that is the tragedy, I think, of the community, that in setting community uh, taboos and customs, unfortunately, the majority of the community does not take part. And so Mm. it's this small, shrill, conservative minority, Mm. which has a much bigger say than I think the actual numbers. Interesting, which actually brings me to my uh, next question. Was that you've spoken about emancipated Parsi women who have, you know, broken, like I said at the beginning, broken glass ceilings over and over again. At the same time, the churn in the community that you speak about over, you know, women marrying outside the community and being excommunicated. How does the community reconcile these differences today? Is it that they move away from religion like you just mentioned? I don't think this word excommunication is quite appropriate because I don't think it's there in our religion. Uh Also, you know, people forget one basic point that you can't stop being a Parsi because a Parsi is different from being a Zoroastrian. Hmm. A Parsi is a race of people who came from Iran, settled in India. They uh, felt they were being persecuted in their original country. And they came here, some say in the 8th century, some say at various points of time. That's the community. You can't stop being part of the community. But Mm. the religion they were following was Zoroastrianism. 
Now, now the question is, if you a woman marries out of the community, does she continue to be a Zoroastrian? Can she mm. enter a fire temple? Can mm. she attend the funerary rites of you know her relations, or even have asks that they be done for herself? Mm. That's the dilemma in the community. They accept it for a man that mm. his children can be brought up as Parsis for some reason. They don't. But even there, there's a lot of reform taking place. There are priests who perform the naujuts for uh, children of uh, women who marry out. I wanted to ask you a personal question. You yes. married outside uh, the religion. Did you face that kind of pressure from the community or were you far removed from it to really I was feel impacted far, by I, it? I was far removed from it. And uh, nobody ever stopped me, actually, from going mm -hmm. to the fire temple. I don't think they question, really, if you look like a Parsi. And I did have the Special Marriages Act, which a lot of people accept, is that you yes. got married secular, right? So it's not a conversion to another religion. Religion. I didn't have problems because, as you say, I was removed. And I, yes. Delhi is the most enlightened uh, mm. uh, Parsi Anjuman. So actually, they not only admit Parsis who marry out, they accept their spouses as members. But, you know, most Parsi bodies, Anjumans or whatever, take their, you know, their guidance from the Bombay Parsi Panchayat, which often elects very conservative members. Mm. So it hasn't reformed as much as it does. But I think reform is inevitable because... Uh, according to the Parsiana, some 37% of Parsi women marry outside the community. Mm. Uh, and uh, so increasingly, every family has, um, you know, somebody who's married out. Hmm. And I ask you that question again, you spoke about reform and as a Muslim myself, I see reform as an uphill battle within the Muslim community. Does the Zoroastrian community or Parsis, if we were to extend it to them, see the need for reform? And do you see a battle between the Orthodox and the liberals? Yeah, yes, there is definitely a battle, but I think people don't want to get too involved. I think the vast majority, it's always the small minority who's shrill and mm. wants to step in. It's also the priests, you know, the advantage in a way, I don't know what you should call it, between the Muslim community and the Parsi community is that the priests by themselves did not have as much say-so as they should have had because they were dependent on the rich laity for you know, who were the trustees to the fire temples. Mm. So in that sense, it should have been, reform should have been much easier because it wasn't the priests alone who could decide. I mean, they were dependent on the people who actually built the various religious mm. institutions. It's basically the Parsi Panchayat. Who gets elected to the Parsi Panchayat? I'm not sure that that many Parsis go and give a vote in the Parsi Panchayat election. They're That's so, okay. you know, fraught with a messiness which ordinary people don't want to get into. Mm. You know, with only 50,000 members in all of India is what your book says. Is the Parsi community extremely and acutely aware that their numbers are dwindling? And is that making them even more inclusive? That's the funny part of it. I mean, it should be a very obvious uh, fact mm. that if they continue at this rate, they're going to disappear, become a tribe yes. and then totally disappear altogether. Mm. 
a lot of people have this you know a camel in the sand attitude they don't want to think about it they mm. feel that a religion which has survived for 2000 to 3000 years will somehow survive you know and those who are concerned you know in the west for example there are parties in the west mm. america and england where they yes. have made reform and they've mm. gone out of their way to try and parties to meet other parties so that you know the flavor and the traditions of the community are preserved you know i i want to come back to a few things in the book i wanted to get your overall uh, you know perspective on the community i want to talk about mr ratan tata in particular uh, the sense that one gets after one reads your book is while he's you know he's a phenomenal industrialist and he's also a philanthropist at the same time an extremely competitive industrialist what did you discover in the process of writing this book about him that perhaps you hadn't known before well he's such an iconic figure in the business world i've always had a great respect for him but when you talk to individuals you see all sides of a person nothing is ever in black and white and perhaps mm. mr tata has reached such a stature that people are not willing to come forward and you know tell the truth to him so mm. that he might occasionally be misled he has very firm views he doesn't forgive mm. easily yes and he's come up the hard way i mean this idea that for example he was destined to take over the house of tata is not at all true as he himself mm. told me and he pointed out many interviews uh the knives were out for him when mm. he joined tatas and mm. people made life distinctly uncomfortable put him in companies which were not doing well closed them down he was put on the shop floor and he really came back he had a he was well qualified he had a very good job in america he only came back because his grandmother lady mm. navajbai tata said please come back it's your yes. you know your family business and you should be part of it Hmm. So he sacrificed a lot to come back. Yes, I mean it. It doesn't sound like a sacrifice <laughs> coming yes. into this huge company, but I think hmm. he did feel it was. But he felt it was his duty, and whatever he's done, he's seen as his duty. But whether it was his above and beyond his duty that he's done, well, that's a question for every reader to judge for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other interesting connection is, of course, the Muhammad Ali Jinnah connection to the Wadia family, and it's almost been kept as a closed secret that the lesser number of people know about it. I mean, in a certain section of the population, yes, they would know, but I think the younger generations perhaps might, you know, one day discover it uh, by accident. Is that the sense you get when you talk to members of the Wadia family that they don't really want to talk about it as much? Oh, not at all. The Wadia family oh. are very proud. at least nasli wadi was very proud of his connections with jina mhm and he also took pains to make it clear that you know a lot of people have given this impression that jina cut off ties with his daughter after she did not marry a muslim but mm. she he says that my father sent a bouquet of roses to my mother on her wedding day and he continued yes. to keep in touch write letters Of course, mm-hmm. Jinnah did not live for long after mm. partition, so there was no opportunity for her to go to Pakistan. I think the Pakistanis in the early years 
tried to keep the matter secret also mm. so there the uh, the other i feel uh, uncelebrated parsi and i say that because he's been celebrated otherwise is perhaps freddy mercury why why is it that i get the impression that he wasn't celebrated enough in india you know freddy mercury himself is one parsi who wanted to keep his distance from the community he changed mm. his name well i guess a lot of pop singers change their name then yeah. and and parsi the, his original name was farooq balsara and mm. the freddy part could well have been i mean normally parsi's nickname for farooq is freddy mm. just as jamshed is jimmy uh huh so he himself never advertised his indianness or his parsi uh, origins and so he was known more as a british you know pop singer rather than a parsi pop singer mm-hmm. later on after his death his mother and sister tried to make out the case that yeah he didn't you know bring it out because in those days it was the day uh, in britain enoch powell days he mm-hmm. preferred to be anonymous about his past but mm-hmm. though he was totally anonymous about his past it is true that his parents were deeply religious and he himself had laid down clearly what was to be done at his funeral so and two parsi priests were called zoroastrian priests were called to say so, their prayers etc not that he followed any of the rites of the religion <laughs> as that uh, finally uh, kumi um, you know one thing which has uh, stuck out for me in this book is that the amount of philanthropy by the uh, you know the billionaires within the parsi community i don't see such examples in other communities i let me talk about my own community i don't see them giving back to the community as much is that part of the parsi ethos or is it something that the parsi billionaires decided on doing and became a part of you know from one generation to the next it's been passed on yeah i think the billionaires may are not the only ones in the parsi who do philanthropy i think it is part of our ethos if not our religion that you give a certain amount to other people that you good mm-hmm. for the general welfare the billionaires are noticed because they were very enlightened in their charities in the old days in the 18th 19th century when nobody else was doing it but it and mind you most of these early parsi charities if you look at them are not for parsis alone they are for everybody mm. take the case of jamshed ji 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 boy you know mm. he has over 100 charities and there were things for everyone like not many people realized that for example when the british said that no everybody has to pay a grazing tax for the mm. cows yes. he bought a whole piece of land which is now it's called channi road mm. uh, similarly there were you had to come in a boat from mahim to central bombay so he built the mahim causeway he didn't wait for the government to do it the tatas charities are well known they did so many things that the government of the day the british really were not doing mm. whether it was the tata institute of sciences in bangalore the tata institute of fundamental research the tata institute for cancer they saw the need and they went and they were particularly involved in doing charities concerning education and their own community and all communities as well which is why kulke in his book points out that mm. in the mid 19th century you know whereas wealthy hindus were giving their money to pandits to feed pilgrims to build temples 
the Parsis would say proudly that there is not a single beggar in our community because we have given charity in another form. Yes. Finally, I just want to tell my listeners once more, fantastic book. Thank you so much, uh, Kumi, for being on the note. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Farooq. It's so kind of you to call me. If you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. You can also follow us on our social media. We are at the rate IVM podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to reach out to me, I'm Mahro Khanayat on Twitter and Mahro Khanayat on Instagram as well.